Well, we're going to be uh, carrying on with our series looking at Second Samuel. Uh, I'm not forgotten to pray for the world. I'm going to do it later as part of communion. So, if you, <laughs> um, if uh, if you don't have a Bible, you might want to go and grab one, and it's a good time to do it because uh, it's good to have a paper Bible. I'm going to have a number of readings from different places in the Bible today. They'll all be on the screen, but it's good to have paper Bibles to be familiar with them. Uh, They're a lot more easy to use and at home. And you can check up on what I'm saying as well. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for the chance to come together and to read the Bible together and to think about what it means and to apply it in our lives. We pray that you would come through your Holy Spirit and would take uh, this word that was written thousands of years ago in a long way away from where we are now and make it real for us now and relevant to us now and that you would apply it uh, to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So we've been looking at the book of 2 Samuel. I've entitled A Game of Thrones. It's this story of uh, kings in ancient Israel. And one king in particular, uh, King David. Uh, If you've not been with us, uh, as we've started this series, David is now on the throne. He's just become king of all Israel. And it's been a a fairly bloody and brutal process for him to get there. Uh, But now he is there. And he... Uh, is firmly established. God has done something. He's established that actually it's God's kingdom and David is the one who works for him rather than God being a weapon that David can deploy. And he has established David's kingdom as a place that will draw in worshippers and people seeking God from around uh, the neighbouring area. And so we come to chapter 7, and as we read these chapters, as we read this story of David, I say every week that we are trying to see not just what it teaches us about this historic person, he is a real person, he really lived uh, sometime around the Iron or Bronze Ages, uh, difficult to place, ex- uh, to place the dates exactly, uh, but uh, he was a real, uh, real ancient king, and he lived a real life, and his life is interesting in its own right. But that's not the reason why we read about him. We're reading about him and thinking about him because of who he points to. So he points us to Jesus. And we're going to be seeing that in some of the readings that we have today. And all the way through this series, one of the things I'm trying to do is draw together how it is that David fits into the story of Jesus. How it is that David shows us Jesus, why we go on about David so much, and indeed, why the people that Jesus met and lived with went on about David so much. And uh, this chapter, in its way, is key to understanding this. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, so I've built it up now. i do a decent sermon. Here's my lunchtime summary. Every week I try and give a one-sentence or two-sentence summary of everything I'm going to say so that you can tune out and go to sleep. It's a very warm day. For some reason the overhead heaters have been on for 40 minutes, so I'm guessing a few of us are feeling a little bit close to sleep. Uh, If you want to go to sleep, that's fine by me. 
There is a good precedent for that. It happened to St. Paul. I'm very easy about it happening to me. Uh, try not to snore. I have had people snoring very loudly. It's, great. it's fine for you. You're asleep. But for me, it's a little bit demotivating. <laughs> if you want to go to sleep, go to sleep after these uh, this, uh, couple of sentences. God is full of extravagant grace. And that should move us to a life of prayer and praise. God is full of extravagant grace. Grace that overflows and overwhelms. And that should move us to lives full of praise and prayer. God's full of extravagant grace. And that should move us to lives of praise and prayer. We're going to read a number of readings from the Bible now. I've got about five readings, so stick with me. None of them are particularly long, except for the one from 2 Samuel. And the reason I'm reading so many different passages, if you are wanting to learn to be a preacher, I don't recommend this all the time as a way of doing it. Uh, but I want, to, I want to show how, in a sense, the stone that's thrown into the pond in this chapter has ripples that get bigger and bigger and bigger as you go all the way through the Bible. So in this chapter, God throws, if you like, a rock into the centre of the lake of human history. And it has ripples that then flow throughout the rest of the Bible. In some ways, this one chapter is the key to understanding everything else that happens in the Old Testament. Up to Jesus. And is key to understanding who everyone thought Jesus was. And who we say he is. And I want to illustrate that, so I've picked some quotes from the rest of the Bible to help show that. How those ripples spread and how they get bigger as the years go on. So I've got a number of people who are coming up to read. So if you're, if you're coming up to read, I guess this is me saying, get ready. Uh, I'm going to read the bits from the Old Testament and I've got others reading the bits from the New. So... Oh yeah, I should say, we're, in our life groups we're studying a thing which is a, a little book that's the Bible in a hundred pages uh, to try and get us to see how the whole Bible works together. I'm taking, uh, I'm using a number of words already that if you're f- not familiar with church you might not understand. When I talk about the Old Testament I'm talking about all the, all the books of scripture that were written before Jesus was born. So all the books that were written before Jesus was born are the Old Testament. Everything that was written after Jesus was born is what we call the New Testament. And there shouldn't really be a gap between the two of them, but it's a useful break, a useful way of talking about them. So the Old Testament books look forward to Jesus in Christian understanding, and the New Testament books look, look back and reflect on Jesus. And he's, if you like, the pivot around which the whole Bible turns. Anyway. 2 Samuel 7, page 310, if you are following along in our Bibles. After the king, that's David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord's with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? 
Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning. And I have done, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I? Sovereign Lord, and what's my family that you've brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. And who's like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out the nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise that you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be great as you've promised. Uh, Sorry, the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So God makes this promise. And it's a promise, on the one hand, about somebody who will build a physical temple. But David says, I want to build a temple. He applies for planning permission, and as is the experience of anyone who's ever applied for planning permission to do anything, it's refused. God says, you can't build me a temple. But your son will build me a temple. So in one sense, this is a promise about Solomon, David's son, or physical son. On the other hand, it's a much bigger promise than that. Because God is promising two things. He's saying, on the one hand, I will, your son will build me the temple. On the other hand, I will build your house so that you have a son 
who rules forever. Now that's not Solomon. Can't possibly be Solomon. No one would ever understand it to be Solomon. Right? So God is promising him two things. On the one hand, he's saying, you're going to have a son, your son will build me the temple. On the other hand, I'm going to build you something that lasts forever. And we see this promise then reflected on and brought back throughout the whole of the rest of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you an example. It's a very famous reading. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. It's read every Christmas at carol services and at Christmas services. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So a few hundred years later, Isaiah is saying, we still hold to this promise from 2 Samuel 7. We think that one day there will be a king, and God is promising that one day there will be a king who will be called Everlasting Father, Mighty God. Prince of Peace. So we get a little bit more of an understanding of who this person is going to be. This person is not just going to come from David. He's also going to come from God. And he will reign forever. And so Isaiah comforts the people as they are uh, hearing of all that they are doing wrong by saying, God hasn't forgotten you. He still loves you. And so then we get to Jesus. Now I can't remember who I gave these readings to. So someone's got a reading from Matthew 21. Anybody? No? It's just rude. Okay. Well, I'm going to read it then. <laughs> I wonder who I gave that to. I must have given it to someone who went out to the Sunday school. Never mind. I mean, it was very polite of them not to say no. On the other hand, I feel a little bit like, you know, you've left me hanging a little bit here. Okay, I'm going to read this from Matthew 21. Very famous story. This is about Jesus. I'm reading from, uh, sorry, Matthew 24. Is it 24? 21. No, it is 21. Yeah, it's 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It's Palm Sunday, right? The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In other words, whereas Isaiah was saying, don't worry... One day God will send the everlasting one, the father of all creation, who will be called Wonderful God, and he will sit on David's throne. Now the people, when Jesus arrives, are cutting down the trees and laying them on the roads and shouting, Hallelujah, he's here. This is the son of David. This is the one we were promised. This is the son of David. This is the one we have promised. This is Jesus. Okay, we've got another, another reading. 
Uh, got James 1, 17 to 18. Please tell me that somebody's got that. Perfect. <laughs> Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from from Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Okay, now that's not obviously obviously related to what I've just been saying, but I'm going to explain in a minute. James is reflecting back on God's gift of himself and saying, actually, with the coming of this king, something new starts. And then we get the reflection of Jesus' friend John. This is 1 John 4, verses 9 to 11. 1 John is an interesting book. I think I've said before, it's the last book scholars think to be written in the New Testament. About 90 AD. So in a sense, this is, and John was the last one of Jesus' friends to stay alive. And at the end of his life, he wrote this sermon. And he said, this is what I want you to know. Of my entire life following Jesus, building the church, I've been imprisoned on an island... All sorts. This is what I want you to know. This is what you need to know about Jesus and who he was. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Thanks. Okay. So we have this chapter in the Old Testament in which a promise is made. God promises David that he will bring from David's descendants a line of kings that extends forever. Forever. And what I want to focus on about that promise is the extravagance of God's grace. The way that it seems to overflow and overwhelm everything. He actually says in the reading that we made that David's descendants will have a kingdom that's not bounded by time, So God is going to promise to make David's throne established under someone whose kingdom is not bound by time. It will go on forever. It's not bound by sin. It won't won't come to an end because of the sin of the people or because of the sin of the ruler. Actually, that's pretty much how most kingdoms fall in ignominy. So, I mean, you think of the British Empire. Okay, I don't normally preach about politics, but this is getting old now, so I feel like I can. Right, the British Empire collapsed because of the internal contradictions of, in part, of a, a group of white Westerners who went round the world trying to impose their will on other people, usually people of colour. Okay, the sin of the rulers, the sin of the whole project brings the empire to the end. Or the greed of the people brings the project to the end. And Rome collapsed in its own decadence and inward focus. Right? God is saying that this rule will not be like anything you've ever seen before. Sin will not, ha- will not be able to touch it. He actually says, the kingdom that I establish will not be ended by death. I mean, that's the other way that dynasties fail, isn't it? Is that you run out of heirs. Because in the end, death is the final word on everyone. 
And God says, no, I'm going to do something in you. You will have a descendant who rules over death. Extravagant grace. The promise is picked up all the way through the Old and New Testaments in passages that ring with excitement and anticipation. That even in the midst of suffering and darkness, God has a plan and a man who will make things right. And that's the context that Isaiah is writing in. The nation is surrounded by its enemies. Isaiah prophesies how sooner or later Israel is going to collapse because of its own sin, because of its own mortality. And yet, he says, God has a plan for fixing it. No matter how dark things are getting, there is one coming who will reign forever. Amen, sister, preach it. The prophets speak of someone from the line of David who will reign forever. And then Jesus arrives and you can sense the the excitement of the people. I, I don't know if Palm Sunday becomes a little bit trite for us. Because, you know, we've got the little palm crosses and they're cool. I like them. They're cute. And it becomes very nice. And often you've got the kids make the big palm branches and everyone's singing the songs. And the songs are slightly twee. I, I don't know if, you, if somehow we lose that sense of a people who have been in exile or under foreign rule for hundreds of years. Whose entire lives are in darkness. And then suddenly this guy arrives and they're like, oh my days, he's the one God promised hundreds of years ago. It's finally come true. It's finally come true. Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, no wonder they were ripping apart the streets in celebration. Jesus himself then when he comes he's teaching, he says I want you to understand the kingdom of God is here the kingdom of God is here because the king is here you can reach out and touch him, why? you can reach out and touch him, why? because you can reach out and touch me you've got an older bible that's what the phrase uh, the kingdom of God is at hand means it's so close you can touch it Because you can touch me. And I am the kingdom of God. And then of course you have the absurd moment when the king of the Jews, the answer to the line of David, is executed. And again, I I wonder whether we understand the tragedy of Good Friday for the people who follow Jesus. You've hoped for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that this promise would be fulfilled. It's fulfilled and within a week he's dead. You know, it feels like the ultimate betrayal. That not only have your hopes been unfulfilled, but they've been unfulfilled and then ripped from you. So when Jesus rises from the dead, the impact is extraordinary. Again, I I, I don't know if you've ever read the narrative of... I'm going off piece now, forget that. Read the narratives of uh, the book of Acts, how 3,000 Jews are saved in a day. Now, we don't know if it's exactly 3,000. Luke's just referring to a very big number. I don't think there's someone there with a ticker. And two people saying, no, I'm pretty sure it was 3,002. Let's recount. Can everybody go back to the beginning? There's an enormous number of people saved. Why? Because they can see that God has done what he said he would do. God said, I'm going to send you a king who reigns forever. They said, hallelujah, the king's here. And then he didn't reign forever. He died. And then he came back to life again. You're like, whoa. 
God has done what he said he was going to do. The resurrection makes a mockery of death and Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father reigning over all in the final vindication of God's faithfulness to David and to his word. And so as we look at the story we've got these two themes emerging. One of extravagant overflowing grace and the other of a response of prayer and of praise. I wonder what the best gift you've ever received for. I wanted to get a bit heavy so I'd bring Oprah in. Uh, If you've ever seen this clip I'm not an Oprah fan. I will lay my cards on the table. I thought The Colour Purple was a miserable film that seemed to go on forever. And uh, I don't really get why everyone loves her. But on the other hand, people do seem to love her. And she does extraordinary things, right? This is probably the most famous moment on American television history, of American television history. Leaving aside like the moon landings. Okay? If you know what's happening next, don't tell anybody. Okay? Everybody in the audience, now listen to me carefully is being given a special package, and I don't want you to open it. Do not open it. Cameras are on you, so do not open until I tell you. Joy rising. Joy is about to rise right now. Does everybody have a box? All right. Inside one of these boxes is a key. Do not open it yet. Okay, everybody, listen up. Here is the deal. If your box has a key, you will be the last person today to get one of those cute little G6s. Okay? Who will it be? Are you ready? Hold on. Are you ready? JR is back in our audio booth. I want, you know, JR, this calls for a drum roll. Cue the drum roll. All right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three. Right. Everybody gets a car, right? Unbelievable, right? You think that they don't have all sorts of problems for the next few years of the show because every time anyone turned up in the audience, they imagined this was going to happen to them, <laughs> right? But I picked that clip because it's, to me it highlights a kind of a human approximation of this unbelievable extravagance of grace, right? That giving gifts that are totally undeserved and unexpected and unmerited. God's interaction with David shows us the extravagance of who he is. Now, I don't know what your, the way that you imagine God. Let me tell you, however you imagine God, you're wrong. Okay? Now, not, you're not just wrong, I'm wrong as well. God is totally beyond anything you could possibly, one could possibly imagine. He's unknowable, he's unsurpassable, he's infinite, he's the one spirit, the uncaused cause. Right? The philosophical proof of God's existence are many and manifold and they all rest on the idea that he's totally unlike anything else. So whatever picture you have in mind when you think about God, I'm really sorry, it's wrong. All we know about God, we know from what he reveals to us, what he shows us about himself. Right? And the one thing that he wants us to know above all else is how gracious and loving he is. How extravagant his grace is. 
Right, that, that moment on became famous on American TV because somebody did something that was so unparalleled in its generosity that nobody had ever seen anything like it. Right? People just showed up for a television uh, audience and every single one of them was given a car. For nothing. They hadn't done anything to deserve it. They didn't pay anything for it. They were just handed the keys to a car, fully taxed, with the insurance paid up, we'll come back to a uh, complaint that people, unbelievable people had a complaint afterwards. <laughs> the human heart's so sinful. They, God is saying to David, that extravagant grace that made Oprah world, famous worldwide is like nothing compared to who God is. God says to David, do you remember the beginning? So David, I don't know if you can picture the scene. David's saying to God, now I am king. I'm in a very rich house. I live somewhere uh, on the heronry. I have a massive house. Very big, one of those big ones. There's so many wings that you have to name them. The east wing, the south wing, the west wing, the north wing. I don't know which wing I'm in. I haven't seen my children for three days. I assume they're okay because they're somewhere on my grounds. And David goes to Nathan, he's got a good idea. He says to Nathan, I, I live in this enormous house with a TV in every room and a jacuzzi even behind, beneath my bed so that I don't even need to get out of bed to have a bath. And you tell my fantasies. And he goes to Nathan the prophet, he says, I'm going to build God a house like this. It seems, un, it seems unreasonable. Right? I've built myself a house. Surely, surely God should have a house. It's, good, it's a good, good desire. Right? He says, I want to honour God. And God says to him, David, 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 do you think I need your house? Let me remind you of your beginning, Sonny. Remember when you were, in the words of take that, never forget where you're coming from. He says, you remember that? You used to live in a dung heap, David. I literally lifted you out of a dung heap. There were sheep all around you. You were a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. Your own father forgot you existed. I mean, in one of the most embarrassing stories in the Old Testament, Samuel the prophet, you can read about this in 1 Samuel, goes to uh, David's father and says to him, "Uh, Jesse, uh, how many sons have you got? And he brings them all out. And Samuel says, no, it's not any of these. I think there must be another one. And Jesse goes, oh, yeah, there is one. I forgot he's in the field. Like his own father forgot about him. Right? David's in the middle of a field where I went on holiday. We were staying on a farmhouse. Let me tell you, farms stink. They stink. Why? Because animals poo everywhere. Right? God's saying to David, remember where you were? You were in a field surrounded by animal poo, sleeping with the sheep, and your own family had forgotten you, and I brought you out of there. I took you from nowhere. You had nothing. I took you from being in a field, forgotten by everybody, to being the greatest military hero in your kingdom's history, right? You slayed giants. People are going to be talking about it 4,000 years later, David. Let me tell you that. Whenever there's... David, you haven't heard of football yet, but let me tell you, in, 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 in the year 2,000 years after Jesus will be born, we'll come on to him later, there will be this sport that they play all around the world, and every time someone small kills someone big or beats someone big, they're going to tell, they're going to tell it about you. But they're going to say it's a David and Goliath story. That's how famous I'm going to make you. You will be one of the five most famous men who ever lived. And then I took you, I didn't only make you famous, I've made you rich and you're the, you're the greatest king in your nation's history. Fabulously successful. But you're going to build me a house. That's nice, thank you. He says you didn't do anything to earn all of this. I, I, I don't know if you get that sense with David. 
We focus on David because David is, has a, a good heart. Right? He shows us something about Jesus. But when God looks at David, all he can see is a gnat who could be squashed. But instead who was cherished. David does nothing to deserve any of this. It's all an overflowing grace. God's grace is unearned. It finds us where we are and makes us what we are not. My friends, I don't want to quash your ego this morning, but you are nothing, and I am nothing compared to God. You are nothing, and I am nothing compared to God. I have nothing that I didn't receive from Him. The very air that I'm breathing now, the very opportunity to breathe that air, I had an epiphany this week, which is how stupid I am. I don't mean in the way that I often find out I'm stupid when I fail to read how my wife is feeling on a particular day. And at the end of the day I think, God, that was a difficult day. I wonder how I could have been so stupid. Like the time when we were cooking curries for member having, not member having daddy, for the football curry that I was having. And Heather had very graciously offered to cook the curry for me because I was doing something else. And I came down and said, it's a bit runny, isn't it, love? And uh, let me tell you, that evening did not go well. And at the end of it, I sat down and thought, I am so stupid. Now, you might all be sitting there th- in a moment thinking, yes, Phil, you are stupid. Right? Let me tell you, there but for the grace of God go you, particularly the guys. I had that unfortunate moment where you say exactly what's in your head and don't check it. No, I had this moment when I was away and I, I suddenly realised that I... I mean, I, I, I play this for, I'm a clever guy, right? I'm a, I'm a clever guy. I finished 15th in my year in Cambridge, okay, for what it's worth. There was no woo there. For what it's worth, I, 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 I'm, I'm, a clever, I'm a clever guy. But I had, I had a moment on holiday. It was the most disturbing and unsettling moment that I've ever had in my life. Right, where I realised that I do not understand a single thing about God. Now, you might be thinking that's a troubling reflection from my pastor. I don't understand a single thing about him because my brain, whilst it's big, is nothing compared to him. Absolutely nothing. I might as well live in a dung heap. But his grace found me anyway. And gave me the only thing that matters, which is him. God says to David, you are a fabulous general. You're so good. People are going to talk about you when Mansfield beat Man United. That's how good you are. And you're nothing compared to me. But I love you anyway. I've given you everything. And yet God goes further and further and further. He says, David says to him, I want to build you a house. God says, no, 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 no. Planning, push and refused. I'm going to build you a house. You get the dynasties in David's time lasted a hundred years or thereabouts. If you follow the, do the ancient history, I'm not an ancient historian, but if you do the ancient history and you go around, you follow the countries around, hundred years, you'd take the throne, you'd establish yourself, you'd have a son, he would fall. Not usually a daughter, sorry. Hashtag them too. Dynasties lasted about a hundred years. God's saying, not a hundred years, it's going to be forever. Forever. Dynasties come to an end because of sin. Well, your kingdom will outlast sin. Dynasties come to an end because of death. Your kingdom will outlast death. Dynasties come to an end because of time. Yeah, don't worry about time. I've got time. You know, it says, don't wonder David's reeling. He's sort of sat there on the floor. It says, it says at the end of it, when David gets his message from Nathan, he goes in and just sits down before God. So I feel like that sometimes. It's like, what am I supposed to say back to that? 
know, and even all of this extravagant grace is a tiny taste of God's grace towards you and me. Everything I've just said is a tiny taste of God's grace towards you and me. Before we do anything, he makes a world that is beautiful and wonderful to enjoy. American uh, children's author Andy Wilson, best-selling children's author, puts it like this. Our our father wove glory and joy into every layer of this world. He wove in secrets that would tease us into centuries of risk-taking before we could unlock them. Flight, glass, electricity, chocolate. He buried gold deep, but scattered sand everywhere. And from the sand came all the wealth of our own age. God made things simple and funny, skin bags full of milk swinging beneath cows, and also hard, skim the cream, add sugar from cane grass and shards of vanilla bean from faraway lands, surround with water cold enough to have expanded its molecules to become solid, now stir and keep stirring, now taste and worship. We say, no more for you, Johnny, you've had enough. And God says, try the hot fudge. God hung easily picked fruit on trees and hid secrets of fine wine at the end of a scavenger hunt. He made horses with strong flat backs, tent lending themselves to an obvious use. And he hid jet wings behind mysteries of steel and fossil fuels. Without any creative help at all, God made up peanuts and bulgy tubers. Squeeze out the peanut oil and boil it, slice the tubers and throw them in, now add salt from the sea. We say that will kill you. God says, take it and eat. He says, holiness is nothing like a building code. Holiness is 80-year-old hands crafting an apple pie for others again. It's aspen trees in a backlit breeze. It is fire on the mountain. God's grace is extravagant. His love for you is extravagant. Supremely we see it in Jesus, the Son of God, the High King of Heaven, eternally begotten, light of light, true God of true God. Go, you get the creed from me, just to show you I do do some work. Son of God, High King of Heaven, eternally begotten, light of light, true God of true God, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things were made, became a working class nobody, suffered, died and descended to the dead for you and me. God's grace is extravagant. While we were still sinners, bound in pride and self-centeredness, afflicted with malice and greed, marred by spite and scoffing, Jesus loved us and died for us. God's grace is extravagant. We offered him nothing but rejection and rebellion. He offered us eternal life, brought in his own blood. God's grace is extravagant. We offered only more and more ways to fail, to ignore God and hurt each other. He offered us forgiveness full and free. God's grace is extravagant. In the words of the contemporary hymn, on and on and on and on it goes. It overflows and satisfies my soul. There are two sides to a gift. There's the giver and there's the receiver. How you respond as the receiver matters if you want to have a relationship with the giver. I'm going to return to Oprah for a second, from the sublime to the absurd. Would you believe that <laughs> having been given the car, right, or, I say or, you were given an offer of a, a cash value of $28,000, right? You could just take the, the cash value of the car, about $28,000. There were people who turned around and complained. <laughs> I don't mean people who didn't get the gift. I mean people who received the gift. 
They wrote to the producers and went to the newspapers and complained. They received the car free. The sales tax was paid. It was insured for them to drive away. But in America, if you receive a very expensive gift, there is an extra tax on the gift, right? That obviously can't be met by the person who's giving it to you because it's a tax on the gift, right? If you give them the money to pay for the tax, the gift value of the gift just goes up. You understand what I'm saying? So they went back and complained that they didn't they weren't also given the money to pay the tax on the gift. I can see people tussing, I didn't see the shaking of heads, and I think that is everybody's reaction to that story, right? Someone's like, here's twenty-eight thousand dollars, and the taxman's like, Well, that's a really good gift, isn't it? Great, you've had a twenty-eight thousand dollar windfall, I'll have seven thousand dollars back from that. You can go home with twenty-one thousand. And the response of the human heart is to turn around and say, Well, why didn't you give me thirty-five? Before we cast stones at our American cousins, maybe we should examine our own hearts. How should we respond to God's grace? Well, David shows us. First in worship, David falls to the ground and praises God. That's the proper response to the revelation of God's extravagant love towards us. I find it hilarious that human beings try and pay God back somehow. Or buy the gift. But what are you going to offer God? There's actually a bit in one of the, um, in one of the uh, uh, sections of the Old Testament that we'll read another day, where uh, God says to them, why are you trying to offer me sacrifices? Now, sacrifices are good as an expression of love, but he says, oh, I, own, I already own all the cattle. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, says the Lord. If I, if I needed cattle, I'd just make more cattle. What are you going to offer me? Nothing except to respond in extravagant love. David comes and declares who God is and praises him and finds joy in him. Worship is our first duty as Christians. What does God want from you in return for the world he's given you and the life and death of his son? Nothing except for you to find fullness in him and worship. We exist to bring glory and praise and worship to God. Now that, in one hand, is appropriate, it's fitting, it, it seems right. We teach our children to say thank you. But it's also actually self-interested. You see, it's in worship that we find our final joy. I don't mean in singing songs. You might be someone who finds the singing of loud songs leaves you a little bit cold. Actually, uh, I'll let you in on a secret, that's actually my personality as well. If I were left designing my own very own worship service, it would be quiet and intimate and full of silence, Right? I'm very introverted. But it does mean that it's in that response to God in worship that you will find the fulfillment that you seek. We, are, we find that we're at peace and restored. St. Augustine prayed, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find rest in thee. You're created to be a worshipping creature, to be in relationship with your Father. And so it's self-interested. To, to, to find peace in that. David doesn't stop in praise, however. He begins to pray. See, God's grace and promises don't make prayer unnecessary. They prompt it and motivate it. 
God has abundant power and plans for the future. He has abundant power and plans for your future. But he wants you to share in them with him. The proper response to God saying, this is what I want to do through you, is saying, yes, God, do it. And how can I be involved? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then go and start doing it. How can we apply this? Well, if you're not sure about Jesus, you might call yourself a Christian, you might not. It doesn't really matter what label you put on yourself, but if you find that you don't quite follow Jesus in the way that I've been talking about today, you haven't met God in the way that I'm talking about today, then God's message to you is that his love for you is extravagant. Jesus gave up heaven, dwelt in dirt, died in ignominy, descended to death and defeated the devil and he did it for you. To give you the peace that overcomes love, that fulfills and life that never ends. So accept the gift. For those who follow Jesus, there will be some of us who feel the weight of duty or heaviness or even fear in response. In some ways, fear is a good response to God. You start to contemplate what a being must be like who who, who exists before the universe. Which incidentally is a philosophical necessity, right? You have to have someone there. That's why uh, philosophy departments across America... Uh, and uh, the Anglo-American Academy. Um, the philosophy departments are the area where belief in God is absolutely strongest. Well, the people who do the biggest thinking about the meaning of life, the people who think about the big problems of life, most are the ones most likely to believe in God. It's just statistically true. Um, because you need God to make sense of anything. It's good to feel a sense of respect But God wants you to take joy in him. The end for which you were created and then recreated was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Whatever your devotional time is, make sure it includes a time for saying thank you. Every day. For worshipping every day. Even if you do nothing else, say thank you and worship. Finally, if you're someone who loves to praise and worship, who revels in knowing God and is secure in that, begin to pray in response. Ask God to bring his grace and love into the lives of those you meet. Ask him how you can be a part of his plan for the salvation of the world. Then act in response. God is full of extravagant grace. And it should move us to lives of praise and prayer.